0: You're listening to Better Fishing with two bald biologists sponsored by the North Carolina Wildlife Resources Commission. I'm Corey Oakley, the Assistant Chief of Fisheries Management for the Inland Fisheries Division.
1: And I'm Ben Ricks, Coastal Region Fisheries Supervisor.
0: We are fisheries biologists who are avid anglers. We want to link the work we do as biologists to your fishing. Our goal in this podcast is to use the information we have as an agency to help you catch more fish and learn about our state's great aquatic natural resources. All right, welcome back, folks, to another episode of Better Fishing with Two Bald Biologists. I'm Corey Oakley, and there's Ben. Hey, Ben. Hey, guys. So today, we are joined by Mr. Bob Branch, who is a longtime angler on the Roanoke River. And so, I feel like I'm in a wall of honor here because I got Ben, who grew up fishing the Roanoke River. Hold on. Yep. He feels like he's
1: in a wall of honor because he's with me. I just want to...
0: You want to stop there? I just... Stop yeah. there. And we're done. <laughs> <laughs> but seriously, there's a lot of lot of great knowledge that we're going to hear about today on the podcast because both of you grew up fishing the Roanoke River. One of you is a little older than the other. We won't say who that is, but you'll probably pick that up throughout the conversation. But Bob, tell us a little bit about yourself. Glad that you're here on the podcast. Well, I appreciate you having me. I'll be 64, so I'll go ahead and clarify that for
2: uh, Ben. <laughs> he won't have to address that. I'll be 64 in April. And I grew up in Weldon and had a great experience in a small town there on the Roanoke. I've lived in Cary since 1988, and my mom and dad still live in Weldon. And my dad will be 94 in April and has fished the Roanoke for a
1: long time. And what's your dad's name? Boots. Boots. So there may not be a lot of people who know Boots, but the people Who's from who there. are from that area yeah. all know That Boots is like a legend of the Roanoke. He's probably the OG river rat, if you will. The OG. I like that. There is no doubt. And the man loves that stretch of river, like maybe about an eight-mile stretch of river, and there was no reason for him to go anywhere else because he caught all the fish. (laughs)
0: <laughs> well we'll just
1: put it that way well
0: my question is did he pass it down to you bob or did it skip a generation it skipped I, I couldn't carry his bag he loved the roanoke
2: and loves it still like no one i know
1: it's yeah i mean he's there i saw him we were running the krill he's not getting out as much as he used to but he's still driving through the welding boat ramp checking make sure everything's sure. right there you go yeah. there ain't nothing so. wrong with
0: that and if we're not doing it right, he'll stop yeah. and let us know what we need well, to do. Well, if I lived in 94, which is highly unlikely, but if I lived in 94, that's exactly what I'm going to be doing, riding through the boat ramp, <laughs> seeing what people are catching and telling the biologists that they're not doing it right. Can't wait to do that. So Bob called, or I called Bob. He had some questions about the Runnock River straight bass
1: fishery, oh, about a year or so ago. And we were talking about that and I was like, Branch, Branch, I says, you any kind to of boots? And so then we just hit it off. And I I mean, to be honest, we about once a month or so anymore, we have wound up talking to each other about striped bass and the way things used to be on the river. And as we were talking about doing the striped bass podcast, it's a huge fishery, probably
0: arguably one of the more popular fisheries. In the state. Maybe on the Atlantic seaboard, really and truly, because there's a lot of people that come from out of state to go fishing on the Roanoke Annually. Every spring. We
1: run into folks that we meet every year during the creel survey, and they're from New York and Pennsylvania and all over the place. And one of the discussions that Bob and I had was, you know, when we were growing up, and even when I was growing up, it wasn't the fishery that it is now. And so that perspective, I thought, would be kind of an interesting thing to bring to the podcast, talk about kind of where it was, and also where it is now, and kind of talk a little bit about how that fishery has transformed over the years. So that's kind of why we brought Bob in. So here we are, talking about striped bass on the Roanoke.
0: Shocking. Spring of the year, we're talking about striped bass on the Roanoke. That's very right. shocking, Ben. That's right. But it's a good topic. Very popular. So really, to get into this,
1: and I'm already talking too much, so I'm going to shut my mouth. Maybe ask Bob a couple
0: questions. Well, wait a minute. You're going to shut your mouth? Probably not. Probably not. (laughs) Probably not. (laughs) It would be a boring (laughs) podcast if you shut your mouth. We'll talk about that later, too.
1: (laughs) (laughs) You know, these fish are here. They come to Weldon every year about the same time, and they're here to spawn. Right, Bob? Right. So they're stacked up. They're trying to spawn, but before they spawn, they're pretty hungry, and they're concentrated. And as fishermen in general, If we can find hungry fish that are concentrated, that's that's kind of the dream. That is the dream. So talk to us a little bit about your childhood and fishing on the Roanoke, fishing with your dad. Kind of take us back a little bit and just kind of give us maybe a story or two about growing up on the Roanoke and fishing there.
2: Sure. It was a great experience. My dad was, as you mentioned, loved the Roanoke and fished and hunted that river regularly. And so I had the benefit of learning from him, and it was a great experience. We fished most days, not all days, but I would say we fished five or six days a week. Amen to fishing five, six days a week. Wish I could do it. Amen. Continue on. Sorry, I cut you off. (laughs) But as a kid, it was different than it is today. The limit was 25 fish. We rarely caught 25 fish, but that was the limit, and when you went, there would be 10 or 15 boats on the river, all locals, unlike today, when you might see three or 400 boats on the river. As I reflected on the, what it was like, they were all John boats, all homemade. My dad built the boat that we fished on, which I find just amazing. I wouldn't know where to start, but uh, he did, still has that boat, and I hope one day he'll pass it down to me. But it was fun. The technique. Fishing has changed. When I grew up as a kid, most fishermen troll. Slow troll with red fins or rebels.
1: I've told many folks, and they still don't believe me, the blaze orange red fin is a striped bass smackdown.
0: So are we talking Cotton Cordell red fins? Is that right. what we're talking about? Okay, gotcha.
1: The chrome one and the white one and the blue back and the black back will all work, but that bright orange joker doesn't look anything like anything. was was the deal. The deal. Every striped bass person on that river knew about it. Had one. Had one in their box. And you could tell what they were catching on because you could see them a half a mile down the river (laughs) when they got one. Well, it's
2: interesting you bring that up because I vividly remember, and I think I know who brought it to the Roanoke the first time, but no one had it but this person. And you would see them trolling, and they were catching fish, and you weren't. And you could see that it was orange, but that was it. So we would, after the season, often we would go when the water was lower and retrieve all the baits that had been Mm. broke off and keep those for the next season. That's right. Uh, And you found all kinds of red fins that had been painted orange, painted red, painted pink, because no one saw that original equipment. But then shortly thereafter, everyone had one.
1: Oh, It's crazy how familiar this story is, because in the summertime, I mean, I wasn't in Weldon. I grew up two miles upstream from there, above 95. We would walk down as kids to the river, and we would have a five-gallon bucket and put bucktails in it. So, I mean, that was just what we did as kids. We were swimming around the river. We realized there was free tackle laying everywhere. (laughs) It became one of the best Easter egg hunts you could imagine (laughs) as a young kid, you know? Yeah.
2: Yeah. It was also interesting, I think, people would find that we would catch, let's say we had a good day and we caught eight or ten, well, we'd come home and my dad would say, well, okay, get on the phone and see what neighbors would like a fish. So you would call all the neighbors and the first question would be, are they cleaned? And when the answer was, well, no, they're not clean, well, I don't think I want any. Obviously, that changed over the years.
1: Sure. No, it's really interesting you know, bob mentioned it growing up it wasn't the big popular fishery that it is today this weekend we were talking to bass anglers that were saying how you know there's a lot more bass fishermen out there so there's a lot more pressure on the water than it used to be but growing up it was you're out there and there was a guy down the street from you and you ran into folks from church on the water you ran mm-hmm. into folks you know your neighbor and that kind of stuff so really any given day of fishing on the Roanoke, you probably knew at least 30% of the boats you saw, like you had a relationship with them. And that was kind of a very unique experience. Sure. And I mean, I fished all over and I don't have that many friends out there anymore because there's just so many boats from so many different places. And even locally, we're all going in different directions as well. So it's very interesting. But I learned a lot growing up from washing boots and seeing where he was and there would be times that he and I would wind up in the same spots because we were both trying to get away from the crowd he had that little wooden boat that he could weave in and out of the rocks really well I had a 17 foot three foot wide Arkansas style john boat and I would weave that thing all through the rocks too and so inevitably there was occasions where I'd be on one side of the river and he'd be on the other and and when you found yourself in that situation, you knew you were probably in the right spot. You know, like
0: <laughs> I thought, well... You were hunting the right ground at yeah, that
1: point. I'm where Boots is. I can't be, but so far off, off track here right now. And I gave a talk, what was it, a week ago? Two weeks ago? Sometime recently to the, the Halifax Wildlife Club. And one of the first questions they asked me was, have you seen her talk to Boots lately? So, yeah, he's still got a very a very big following everybody loves him. everybody kind of asks about him and and that kind of thing so it's kind of cool to see that and hear that i'm sure you've got all kinds of stories along those lines but even myself it's he was just such a big part of the fish he still is a big part of the fishery because folks are still talking about what he did and what he's doing and i'm sure we'll see him at some point this spring <laughs> cruise by he's so, looking forward to uh, getting back out there at 94. that's right that's right so we talked a little bit about the management you know at one point the limit was 25 fish it scales back my dad's got a picture of him and his partner at the time on our bookcase and they've got a you know blue tarp laid out and there's i think at that point it was 16 fish per person It's funny, folks will come in the house and they'll look at my dad like he's an outlaw, you know, because he's got (laughs) that many striped bass in a picture. It's like, well, at the time that was legal, you know. It got scaled back at one point to three days a week where you could only keep fish three days a week. Then things went back up to two fish per person. There's somebody, listen, I'm skipping over a few rules
0: here and there. but You're giving a general overview. And now we're back to... If you disagree with Ben, by the way... I'll give you his personal phone number, it's not a problem, just You can email, email me, <laughs> at, before Corey does that, you can email me at
1: twobaldbiologist at ncwildlife.org, and I'd love to hear your input. That's right. So, there's been a lot of different management actions, and they've all been really related towards over-harvest and to fix mortality concerns. And at one point... Our fishery was as strong as any other striped bass fishery on the eastern seaboard. That's probably arguable, but it was pretty daggum strong. I mean, I, you know, my one little claim to fame, at one point I was a little local legend for being one of the first guys to catch a really big one. You know, I caught one that was about almost
0: 42 pounds. Wow. He keeps bringing this up, Bob. He so does. He told me that story. It's pretty important to him. <laughs> so just let him um, bask in the glory of it all, and then we'll just move on. It's my one thing. I know. I don't, <laughs> okay. have my one thing. I don't even have a thing. So See? There you go. So if you had something, you would know how important <laughs> this is. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so I caught it right up there near the gap. Everybody loves that area. It's a big fish area. It was during the time when you... Could still harvest herring, and I was using a live herring. I'm not, you ain't proud, I'm not ashamed that I used a no. live herring to catch that <laughs> that's fish. Called,
0: that's called being smart. That's right. what that is. But that's anyway. right.
1: We got on that week, I think it rained every day that week, all day. It was like the deluge, and it seemed like my boots were just consummately wet, but we caught a lot of big fish that week, and that was kind of my biggest claim to fame as far as that and for a while there I'd come home and from college and they'd be like didn't you catch a big fish I'm like hey you're right yes I did, I did. <laughs> so and now everybody's forgot about it and they don't even remember that I'm from Roanacrap because they just think I'm some old biologist that right doesn't have their best interest at heart and I'm going to tell you that that's not true because the Roanoke is why I became a fish biologist I was fascinated with the shad migrations the striped bass migrations why they did what they did. And we've, Corey and I have talked about this before, but I became a fish biologist for very personal reasons. I wanted to catch more fish. Selfish. Yeah. It's
0: just downright selfish. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it was the same for me. It was just downright selfish. Right. I wanted to catch more fish. I want to catch more fish. And if
1: I could learn more about them, maybe that would help. Yeah. It's helped you a lot. (laughs) I try to make sure we get our
0: fair share over here. Me, on on the other hand, I don't know how much it's helped me. Evidently, I wasn't listening when I was in college. But anyway, that's a different story. So. (laughs) We're talking about striped bass. Continue. Yeah, so, I mean,
1: what I'm saying is this fishery is crazy important to me. It's a hugely unique opportunity as a fish biologist to kind of be one of the biologists that works on the systems that you grew up on. Like, that's a very unique experience. Not everybody gets that opportunity. It's special to me, and I feel honored that I have that privilege. So, We're trying, guys. Just know that we're trying, (laughs) and I hear you, and I know where you're coming from. Well, Ben, it's
2: interesting. You mentioned catching this large striper with herring, and I went with my dad once or twice when he was doing that, and thank goodness the regulations changed and stopped that because I think that was probably some of the demise of some of the really big fish because they weren't caught regularly, occasionally, but it was not frequent on a bucktail or a red fin. wouldn't catch that fish ordinarily on that lure. Right. But that live herring was trouble for that big fish. And I would say, having grown up there, being older than you, I was a part of the crowd. I was on the end of it when you, what was called chase fights, when okay. you actually caught them in a net while they were spawning, which... Now that I'm 64, and look back thinking, how insane is that? (laughs) That you're taking the female out of the reproductive cycle during the reproductive cycle. And fortunately, in 81, I was finishing college in 81, that was outlawed. Thank goodness, because
0: that was uh, in hindsight, that was not good. So, just so our listeners are clear, and so I'm clear, because this is new to me. This is awesome. This like, is new to me. So you were, if I heard you right, you were taking nets and as the stripers were fighting, spawn fight, basically right. rockfish fighting, they call it rock fighting Corey, a lot. I'll talk
1: about that for just a second so they understand what yeah, the fight sure. is. When they're spawning, a female comes up just under the surface yep. and the males see, smell, whatever they they key in on that. And the males will come up and kind of beat against the female. The female will release eggs. The males will do their thing. And those eggs will get fertilized. And it's called a rockfish fight.
0: Yeah, you can visually see it from, you know, they're up at the surface. It bursts to the surface. Right. Is water splashing.
1: You'll see these fish thrashing around on the surface. And it may be the size of a trash can lid. It may be the size of, you know, they may be 50, 60 feet across, depending on the number of fish that are yeah. in a given area.
0: And so, when that was occurring, y'all were taking boats, going up and dipping them with some kind of net, basically.
2: So, the process, they would congregate. So, the females that were going to spawn, they're in close proximity to each other. And Mm -hmm. so, when I was a kid, most of that was right there in front of the boat ramp. It was right below the falls, down to before you'd get to that first curve in the runoff. And they would spawn right there in that area usually start late in the afternoon and would go all night. Mm-hmm. And boats would idle with one man sitting on the front with a bow net and one driving the motor. And when they'd surface, scoop them up with a bow net.
0: I got you. So you could do that till 81?
2: Till 81. It was changed in 1981.
0: Yeah, I agree with you. That might have been a good idea that, that was, that was got a good changed. idea. That yeah. should not
2: have been done. Now, as a kid, <laughs> that was a lot of fun. Yeah, it was cool. And there were... You know, usually there'd be 20 to 30 boats, but again, locals, but thank goodness that rule was changed. Imagine
0: 400 boats doing it. Oh, my. And
1: Bob, <laughs> you may be able to shed light on but from my granddad and my uncles and talking to them about, it was like pandemonium. Like, there was boats running into boats. Crazy. And, Crazy. Very aggressive. Yeah. They weren't your neighbors
0: on that day. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. It was... Like a free-for-all. I can 100% see that. You know, I've only fished a row oak maybe 10, 15 times in my life for stripers. Maybe less than that. I'm not even sure. So, when you're catching those fish on the spawning grounds, are you seeing fish with them? Like when you're chasing them around? Or? When the water temperature's right, if you catch a female,
1: you'll pull the males up with it. Those males will think that female's ready because you're reeling
0: it in. Yeah, that transcends fish because... Like hybrids at Lake Norman did the exact same thing. When we were working on them and we were catching them up in the river when they were spawning, you'd go to dip one and you'd dip five. I mean, you'd literally have five in your net and you're like, where'd they come from? Like you didn't even see them. They were just there with that other fish. So Mm -hmm. I find that very interesting that, well, I mean, I guess that's just fish behavior. It just transcends everywhere, but pretty cool. right? I could see how they were very susceptible to being caught when they were doing that.
2: That was not good. You know, as a kid, I didn't know any better, but uh, one of the fun things was growing up there, you tied the nets. My dad taught me how to tie the mm. net. And so after dinner. Can you still do that? No, no. <laughs> you would tie a net, you take turns and you'd tie for 30 or 40 minutes till you got tired. And then you'd come back to it, tie it a little longer, and made the actual bow net itself, cutting mm-hmm. down uh, cedar mm-hmm. saplings and shave them put them in a C formation, stake them in the yard, and let them dry, they'd stay in that formation.
1: I got my granddaddy's bow net, and my uncle told me he made it in such a way that it would block off all of Vaughn's Creek. <laughs> wow. <laughs> so, that tells you how... He'd done the math. <laughs> right. He said, I need a bow net this, <laughs> this big. This big. Yeah. That's crazy. So, when... We were going through stuff at the farm. I told my wife, I said, I'd I'd like to have that bow net. I don't know what I'm going to do with it. I don't know where I'm going to put it. It's still in storage at the farm, but, but yeah, I was like, I need this. I think it would be good to have. What was the netting made out of? Just twine. Okay. Gotcha. I don't know. Some kind of nylon, cotton,
2: braid, twine. Gotcha. Gotcha. That you would tie with a block. It was interesting.
1: But yeah, thank goodness that
2: rule changed.
1: (laughs) So, I mean, it went. From a free-for-all, a literal get as many as you can while they're laying eggs, which maybe you're cutting off your nose in spite of your face a little bit. Bob's nodding right now.
2: Absolutely. Not (laughs) the
1: smartest thing. So, yeah, something had to happen, or we was just going to run out of fish, so to speak. Not so to speak. We literally were going to run out of fish. So, as those regulations changed, And this was a phenomenon we saw across the eastern seaboard in kind of the late 70s, early 80s. We were really at an all-time low in striped bass abundance. And it wasn't just North Carolina. It was Chesapeake, Hudson River, Delaware Bay. All these systems were relatively low. And resource managers were like, we don't do something. We won't have these any longer. Striped bass, luckily, are very responsive to management they're one of and Corey can vouch for this they are one of the textbook examples in our fish classes yep. about how length limits fish management can restore a fish population yep
0: and it's been proven over and over and over again that it works right
1: it's been done multiple rivers
0: with multiple rivers multiple places along atlantic coast Yeah, with striped bass. That's what I'm talking about. That's what I'm saying. It's been done over and over and over again with striped bass, that it actually does work. Mm -hmm. So the state of North Carolina, through all
1: the kind of restrictions we were talking about, and also through trying to work with the core engineers and Dominion Power on the Roanoke to get the right water releases so that we would have optimal or as close to optimal, they can only do so much a lot of it relies on rainfall you know in a dry year we only have so much water in a wet year maybe we have too much water and you know we can't flood houses and we can't give the river water that we don't have those are the two kind of limiting factors on either extreme of the water but we also kind of found that happy zone to this water level seems to give us consistent spawning conditions maybe it's best for the fish so that helped, but without the restrictions and without addressing the mortality issues, they can have the perfect situation as long as they want. But if you've got no apple trees, you're not going to get any apples, so to speak. And that's what you, you need to preserve, those females so that they can spawn,
0: so they can lay eggs, so we can have more fish in the river. And not just females. You need large females. I mean, females in general, you got to have them, but... The bigger the female, the better their eggs are, the more eggs they have, and the better survival you're probably going to have for that recruitment class for that year. I call them egg buses. They are you know, egg buses. You get the, a relatively large female,
1: one over, let's say, 18 pounds. Yep. Maybe, I mean, we've seen
0: some fish in the upper 50s. Those fish have a lot of eggs, and, and their quality is much higher. Right. Our hatchery people that deal with, with stripers they don't really even want to deal with a fish under 15 pounds. They're like, we can do a female under 15 pounds, you know, spawn them out, you know, to get fry. But it's really not, they won't say it's not worth their time, but it takes so many more 15 pounders as if you had 120. It's amazing what 120 will do versus five or six, 10 pounders will do. So because those larger,
1: older fish are so important, That's why the regulations have to change. That's why we need to protect those fish so that we can perpetuate the fishery. And as we cut back on those harvests and as we found those sweet spots in our water management, as you know, kind of in the late 90s, early 2000s, things were looking really, really good on the Roanoke. I mean, really good. I mean, that was kind of the peak.
2: Right. It was interesting for me... Having grown up there and fished it often until I went to college and then life changed and moved and got married and raising children, having a career, would come back and fish three or four times a year with my dad and show up. The benefit is you had a
1: pretty strong scout, so you could just show up and hop on the boat.
2: I could still catch fish, yes. (laughs) I had the best. He was very knowledgeable. But it was such a shock to the first few times I showed up and see – 400 trucks in the parking lot with boats fishing. So, it was a big change from what I had grown up experiencing. Sure. And so, clearly, I agree with you. In the early 2000s, there were a lot of fish, and there was a lot of publicity, and there were a lot of people chasing them.
1: Right. Well, and, I mean, the Wildlife Commission, you know, we spent a lot of work trying to restore the fishery, and we... Are all about fishing opportunities, and so we were part of that publicity because we wanted to say this is a great opportunity. We want you to know right. about it. It was such a good fishery. It was getting out no it matter was what happened. Sure. Know. I mean, again, I caught one that was almost forty-two pounds. You know, let's just did he mention that at home? Just getting tired of
0: it. <laughs> I'm just being honest with you. <laughs> just getting tired of it.
1: But no, all kidding aside, it was a fantastic fishery. It was one of those fisheries where you could take kids, you could not be the best fisherman in the world, and you could still have a very high level of success. It still is that. It's not necessarily as strong as it was. And we're about to talk about that. But for a while there, I mean, you basically launched your boat and dropped a trolling motor or just start drifting and start catching, you know? And we as fishermen, yeah. we fish, but we
0: love catching. We right. love catching.
1: Well, that's what I always said. It was. Friends who wanted to
2: go with me, and I took a number of folks who'd never really caught fish. It was catching.
1: That's right. Yeah. That's why
2: they obviously
1: loved it. Yeah. My dad used to take folks before work. He'd have business meetings, and instead of going golfing, they'd go catch stripers for a couple hours and then they'd go handle business and that kind of thing. And I mean, it was just the amazing part to me growing up was how much a part of the local culture
0: that that fishery was and, and really still is. Well, I'm not from there, so I am from North Carolina but not from there. Every time I go there, whether it's to be at the creel survey at the boat ramp or whether it's to be on a boat, you can tell how ingrained that fishery is to Weldon and to Roanoke Rapids in that area, how important those anadromous fish are, whether it be river herring or whether it be striped bass or whether it be shad, and I would say striped bass probably ranks out above all of those. You can email me if you disagree at 2 bald biologists. <laughs> But it's just so ingrained in the culture and the history of that place that I don't think that'll ever go away, even with all the influx of new people and the influx of people from all over the Atlantic coast to come fishing there, and it's not local like it was when you were young, Bob. And it's probably, well, I know it is. There's even more people now than when you were young, Ben. Sure. It's still ingrained in that community. You can tell. They kind of eat, sleep, and breathe it a little bit. At least that's my impression of it when I'm there. And I'm not going to say... Because the locals fish it different. Oh,
1: sure. And how they approach it, they fish it different. I'm not going to give out all those tips on the air, or I'm going to get a lot of emails. If you need his home address, (laughs) email me. (laughs) But they do fish it different than even some of the normal out-of-town crowd that does it multiple times a year. If you talk to a local or watch a local, they're going to fish it slightly different and attack things slightly different. And it's interesting to see, working the creel, I can almost tell who's a local versus who isn't. Oh, yeah. And I'll also say the number of times— You can just see it in the type of boats that they use. The boats, the baits they use, how their boats are set up. Yep. Because the other thing, and we were talking about this earlier, we built these boats. We would buy a hull and set it up. To fish the Roanoke River, and we built shad barrels. We're going to talk about that here in a second to kind of get back to that. But we built these bait barrels to hold shad, so we could have live bait on the river as well. In fact, let's talk about that right now. And I didn't realize this till this morning, but Bob, you say your dad was maybe one of the first. It was the first I recall, but I think my dad was the first to
2: introduce live shad to the river. And I recall this being in the Late 60s, I was a young 12, 13-year-old, so late 60s, early 70s. They were catching these striped bass in the Runoff Rapids Lake Mm -hmm. and saw all these live shad. You could see them. When I fished it with him, you didn't need a throw net. You could see them lined up when they were generating power four feet wide against the rock side, and you could scoop them up with a wire net. And so he had the bright idea. Well, that's what the rockfish are eating. I think if we bring this bait to the Roanoke and Weldon, we'll do well. And that was the start of uh, a dangerous thing. It's a very productive <laughs> technique. And now catching <laughs> bait is hard. Now catch. So they now, and I've done. It's been a few years when he and I would go up there. You could only catch them at night when they weren't generating power, and throwing the throw net for several hours. I don't know what they're doing today because we don't fish any live bait, and I have my opinion about live bait, that it probably ought to be outlawed if you want to replenish the stock, but that's just an opinion. But yeah, he did that in the late 60s, early 70s, and one of the things he and I always admired, and of course, he learned that you couldn't keep them alive. We would drag them back from the run Crappies Lake in 60-gallon plastic trash cans and you realize after a couple of hours, they were dead. And the stripers didn't like them nearly as much dead as they liked them alive. They'll eat them, but not, near not as nearly well. as good. And so they started making these live whales, basically a shad barrel. That's what we called them was shad barrels. Shad barrel in their gunboat boat that my dad had built his boat. And he and I love to look at these fancy bass boats that would have a homemade shad barrel right there in the middle of this expensive fancy
1: boat so the homemade sh- it was like this science in in the runner crap is welding area and everybody had their own version and the own thing that they thought was right and there was always this scrounging of a barrel somewhere you'd find a barrel and you so are we talking about metal barrels no like no. plastic barrels Because they all were probably from farmers and herbicide. They were almost all either blue or white. Yes. You know, they would start with just you put a pump in a bottom and a resert. And then you realize, well, that doesn't keep them as good. That's not good enough. And so then there was filtration. My dad, we actually, because my dad had a tracker, we had two 35-gallon barrels that were linked together. My dad loved silicone. (laughs) Loved it. We had a shad barrel that was linked together with about 17 pounds of silicone on it, (laughs) and my neighbor, who bought the boat from dad still uses that bait tank. Wow. He actually had a water filter on it to help get the scales out of it. Scales became a problem. Scales are crazy with those things. That was before you could buy a super bait tank or a gray line or any of these other commercially available bait tanks, so... If you were going to bait fish, you had to make your own bait barrel. And if you wanted them to live past about 1130 in the morning,
0: (laughs) you had to have some sort of filtration on it to help with those scales. There's one thing about shad or herring, for that matter, if you use herring as bait, because some places you can, if you don't filter out the scales and you don't have that water flowing constantly and moving constantly, it don't take very long. They'll get crushed really quick.
1: So one thing about this bait, and I did not even realized this until I became a fish biologist. We grew up calling them shad and or pointed nose shad. Ah. What they really are, you know, put my fish nerd hat on for a minute, is, and there were thread fins and gizzards in the mix, but what the predominant bait that I grew up fishing were alewives. Yeah. Actually, now that we've done some genetic work, they're actually hybrids between bluebacks and alewives. So they're not even really shad. They're in the same family but they're actually a hybrid of
0: herons, so to speak. So so were you getting them out of Roanoke Rapids, or were you getting them out of the river? You get them out of Roanoke Rapids Lake. Yeah, that whole chain's full of those hybrids. Yeah,
1: they don't get near as big as a migratory heron. They only get about maybe five, six inches at the most yeah. because of the productivity of the lakes. Yeah, And that's why there's the rule that says you can only have a heron that's less than six inches. It's because we know... Yeah, that they come from out of the lakes instead of being yep. part of the migratory stock. So there was a lot there. <laughs> we went down a different path. We so Get me back where I was. We were addressing the
0: mortality concerns, yeah. talking about the height of... Yeah, so we were at the height in the early 2000s, and, and it progressed over a period of time. And now we're in a place where our spawning stock biomass, which means the spawners that come to the spawning grounds, has been reduced we don't have nearly the amount that we once had. We got a lot of two, three-year-old fish seemingly coming back to the spawn grounds, but we don't get the big 20-pounders like we once were getting at one time, so that's concerning to us. And we don't see a lot of juveniles in the river after they've spawned out and they're floating out into the Admiral Sound. We're not picking up a lot of juveniles in those surveys either, so that's telling us that not only do we not have a lot of adults coming back to the river to spawn, we also don't have the juveniles downstream after the fact, which they go hand in hand. If you don't have one, you're probably not going to have the other. And some of that is related to environmental conditions. We've had some pretty poor flow years. Ben talked about if you got a drought, you don't get a lot of water, or if you got a lot of rain, you get too much water down the river. And we've had some very high flow years over the past, what, Ben, probably seven, eight, nine and years. I mean, there's been a couple years. Of years that's been right, you know, has been good. But for the most part, you know, once we get... 15,000, 20,000, 30,000 CFS, those babies aren't going to survive. They're going to get up in the floodplain and they're going to die. And we've had a bunch of years where right after they spawn or during the spawn or just before the spawn, that type of flow is coming down the river. Now, we can't stop that. We can't prevent that because we can't flood those reservoirs up above, but so much. I mean, they take a lot of water and they hold a lot of water back. But eventually, they got to let some of that water go or it becomes a problem for their issues. So, at least at one point in every podcast, we say that fish need water. Yeah, but sometimes too much water is a problem. <laughs> in this very moment, we're saying, eh, maybe not that much water. Yeah, maybe not that much water. Yeah, I've actually witnessed... 30, 32,000 CFS a couple of times on the river. And it's, it's a torrent. It's a torrent. It's really high. It's all in the woods. It's all way out in the swamp. So you think about those juveniles that have just been spawned on the river or maybe not even spawned at all because the stripers are like, I hate this because it's too much flow. You know, if you think about those babies, they're getting downstream. They're getting in washed it. through swamps and into cornfields. Yep, and that's exactly all all kinds what of they're stuff. doing. That's exactly what they're doing. And so that becomes very problematic for them in terms of survival.
2: It's interesting to me, and maybe this isn't my place, but oh, it's it's your place. My dad is contended when I would show up and we'd fish two or three times a year for the last eight or ten years that he's contended for eight or ten years. I don't see or hear anybody catching big females, and that I think we would all acknowledge that the stock is very dependent, as you said earlier, on a big female. And so I hear you with the flow and where the Juveniles are going, but that doesn't answer the question well, where did the big females go?
0: And what does your study show about big females? Well, I only bring up flow because that's one thing. That's just one component. It's all connected. And so, whether the big females have been harvested out by anglers, whether the big females are just, we just don't have good enough survival that long term. And it only takes, you got to think about big females, they're, What? They're over 10 years old, right?
1: 14 to probably 16, maybe even up to 20 years old. Yeah.
0: So if you don't get survival of young predicted every, you know, like every year you don't get that survival of the young, it doesn't take very long for big females to start disappearing in the population because you're not replenishing them. right? So it's connected. You have bad spawns, which leads to you not getting fish to grow up, but you're still harvesting fish. Or they're just naturally dying. You have natural mortality of fish as well. So it's all connected. It's not just, I bring up flow, but that's not the only issue. You know, overharvest is an issue. There's all kinds of issues that deal with the population. I'm about to say we, a bunch. And when I
1: mean we, I mean (laughs) we, North Carolina, all the agencies involved, the fishermen, everybody. So just kind of keep that in mind. But we built this fishery up. And we restored the fishery, and in 97, we declared it recovered. We were like, we did it. You know, pat ourselves on the back. And when you restore a population, you don't have to have these aggressive harvest restrictions anymore. I mean, that was the whole point is to build it up to a point where we can have more harvest and we can enjoy the fishery. And what maybe happened through that process was that Maybe we open the gates a little wider than they should have. And so when I actually interviewed to work for the Wildlife commissions, one of the questions is, you have this group of fish, you have large trophy fish, and you have small fish, but there's a gap. What do you think's going on? And in the moment, even the biologists weren't really sure. But looking back, those missing, those 15-pound fish, when they went missing, at the time, we just thought, well, it's maybe a, you know, a couple of bad recruitment years. There's a missing year class of fish, which happens in fish populations all over the place. It's the normal it's thing. It's natural. Yeah. And as the number of years with that gap kind of progressed, well, then now you're starting to look at these. But you're okay because we got all these big fish still. We got these 40-pounders and 50-pounders that are swimming around, so we're not really worried too much that we don't have these 18-pounders. But then those started to age out, and nothing was replacing them, as Corey was saying. So that was maybe the first cue that maybe we'd open the the harvest gate a little wider than we should have. Now the good part about stripers, as I mentioned before, is if we react to that, the stripers will also react in kind. So that phenomenon and that overharvest—you know—we cut back the tail by half. We've cut it back even more significantly in recent years. Is all an attempt to build that population right back up. And if we build it right back up, you know, I get a lot of folks tell me, "Ben, when has the government ever taken something away and given it back? And I can appreciate that. However, Strike Bass is maybe one of the best examples of when we did exactly that.
0: We might have given too much back. (laughs) (laughs) Right, yeah. A little extra refund on your taxes. Yeah, I mean, we get that a lot. We get that a lot when it comes to regulations in general. And my take home to people, We, as biologists, like to catch fish. We like to eat fish, too. Uh, Most of us do, anyway. Catching and eating fish is a pretty big percentage of my recreational time. Yeah, and it's what we grew up doing, right? But at the same time, what we're looking for is longevity of the population. We're trying to make sure the population has the right foundation to build itself back up over a period of time, whatever fish we're talking about, whether it's stripers on the Roanoke or river herring or whatever, you know, because we talked about river herring last month. And we as biologists and the agencies that are involved in managing it are not trying to restrict to make you have a bad day. We're not trying to restrict to keep you away from whatever it is, whether it's walleye or stripers or whatever, what we're trying to do is conserve the fish now, both for the now and for the future, because there's coming a point in time that I'm not going to be here, and Ben's not going to be here, and Bob's not going to be here, but we want the things that we've heard Bob talk about, with things we've heard Ben talk about, we want those things Maybe not the bow netting part. Maybe not the bow netting. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) But no, I'm talking about just the cultural, the history, the experiences you've all had on the Roanoke. We want those things for the generation that's, you know, now that are teenagers and nine-year-olds and eight-year-olds to experience. But we also want their grandchildren to experience that very same thing 80 years from now. It's also what's best for the fish. too. it's what's best for the fish as well. So, we get that a lot. We get that a lot at the boat ramp. We get that a lot when we go to Weldon and do the Creel. People come and talk to us and say, hey, and they fuss a little bit, and that's all fine. We're thick-skinned folks. We've been fussed at before. Ben and I, we're good with it. We're okay. Yeah. I definitely
1: understand that
0: frustration. I do, too. But we want people to understand that we don't regulate this, and we're not regulating it to take it out of your hands. That is not the point. We are trying to make it better Over the long term. Absolutely. I'm off my soapbox now, sorry. I got four
2: granddaughters, and I
0: would love to introduce them to catching
2: a striper at some point. That's right. right.
1: That's right. I mean, that's why we're here. That's what we do. I mean, the reason why I do what I did is my grandparents took me fishing. My dad took
0: me fishing. That's why why I'm sitting right here today. And it's different because we've heard it in this podcast if people are listening. It's different than it was in the early 1980s. Today has changed. North Carolina has changed. We have a totally different group of people that live here now. I mean, honestly, I mean, let's just be honest about it. we're All three of us are native North Carolinians. We have watched the transformation of our state over the past 20 to 30 years, and it's transforming as we speak in terms of numbers of people, types of people, where they come from, what their interests are, all that kind of stuff.
1: It turns out when we
0: said North Carolina's awesome, we were right. We were right. We just should have <laughs> kept our mouth shut. No, no, I'm sorry. I shouldn't say that on the podcast. But as biologists and as fisheries resource managers, we got to factor that in. We got to factor in that there's more people on the water and there's more people that are utilizing the resource and those kinds of things. And maybe, maybe, just maybe, I don't know. I wasn't around in the late 90s when they made those rules and that kind of stuff. When we opened the gate a little too wide, we didn't factor in as good as we should have when it comes to the numbers of people that are on the water and that are harvesting fish and that are catching fish and that kind of stuff. So those are the kinds of things that we as an agency have to figure out and monitor. That's why we do krill surveys, another soapbox. When somebody's standing at the boat ramp asking questions about the fish that you caught, being honest and taking the three minutes it takes to answer the questions to the person and not making those answers up, like being legit about the answers, that information is so valuable, particularly on the Roanoke. That information is so valuable to how we analyze the fishery and figure out, all right, this is what's really going on on the fishery when it comes to anglers and what they're doing. Second, so, so box them off, of. sorry.
1: All right. So where were we? We built the fishery up. We opened it. Maybe the gate's a little too wide. And so now, I was talking with our biologist, Chris Smith. Y'all may remember him from the Heron podcast. He's also the biologist over the Roanoke. And this was several years ago. And he says, Ben, we are at pre-recovered levels. And I was like, well, then we're not recovered anymore. (laughs) You know, if your levels are less
0: than... We can take that off. We can not throw the parade or the fireworks and take the banner down. (laughs) Right, yeah.
1: We can't claim that victory anymore if we're at levels before the recovery. And to me, that was very concerning and and very kind of, oh my, like we need to do something. And so we did take measures to reduce harvest. We met with the agencies that co-managed the population with us, and we made some aggressive moves to reduce harvest and hopefully address the mortality. And so that's kind of where we're at today. So, if you're wondering, well, why why is there only a six-day season this year? Yeah. Why is the total allowable catch so low? It's an attempt to address that and address it in a very aggressive way so that we can start to rebuild this population.
0: And I would say two things. One, we haven't even finished. There's rules that are going to be in place when it comes to hooks and that kind of stuff. Potentially. Potentially rules that are coming into place in the next year or two about hooks. And we can get down that road if we want to, but I really don't want to. But two, it takes time. Nature takes time to rebuild. Like, you know, a lot of people think, well, you've reduced this and it should turn around in two years. It's just not going to do that. We didn't get here in two years. We didn't get here in two years. We're not going to recover it in two years. We got here over the last 20 years, and it's probably going to take 10 years or more to see that rebound come back. I mean, it just is.
1: And I think it's very interesting. It's a big part of why I invited Bob here. Is one of his first questions that he asked me, having seen, he's seen it. The scope of straight bass is Ben. It's not near as good as it used to be. What are y'all going to do? That was literally one of his first questions he asked me. So because of that, seeing it over all the different management scenarios, you have a very different perspective maybe somebody just started fishing it two years ago. Right, right. You know, yes, you can still go, and you can still have 100 fish days. Oh, yeah. yeah. But you're I mean, catching, there was people doing that last spring. And there are still some fish in probably the 8 to 10-pound range. So you can still go, and you can have a good day. So I get that when I say, well, things are terrible, and you look at me and say, how can they be terrible? I've just had the best day of fishing in my life. I just
0: caught 200 of them. Right. Yeah.
1: Like, I understand how maybe there's a bit of a mixed message, but when you take in the scope of essentially a career of fishing on the Roanoke, you can see that, well, we're not catching the same size we used to catch. We're not seeing there's fewer numbers of larger fish getting caught each year. When you have the scope that Bob has, it's a much different vision and understanding of what's going on. And that's why I thought it would be good to have him on there. I mean, Bob, you want to add to that?
2: No, I would concur. And one of the questions I had proposed was, well, why not a moratorium? And Ben explained to me the complications in that, which I didn't necessarily understand. But it's a wonderful resource that I would hate to see disappear. And I hope that the restoration measures are aggressive enough that it can improve
0: on its own. So I'm going to open Pandora's box and ask a question. Short of a moratorium, because we really don't like that word. I'll be honest with you, because we don't like shutting fisheries down in general. But short of a moratorium, what are some things you think would be beneficial for the Roanoke River striped bass population? Well, guides wouldn't like it,
2: but I would outlaw live bait. Okay.
1: Not just guides. There's a lot of people.
2: There's that, a lot of oh, people yeah, that fish live bait. Absolutely.
1: Maybe absolutely. guys would not like yeah, it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> fishermen.
2: Yeah, I would say fishermen wouldn't like it. You'll stop the hundred-day catch
1: mm. if you take off the live bait, in my opinion. The number of people who can get to hundred without live bait—when you catch hundred fish on a fluke—is very. Yeah, this is a special day. They aren't doing that. I mean, I've done it. Those are
0: unique days. All right, so, hold on. We've just now had another moment. <laughs> I don't know. If everybody... Did he <laughs> mention he caught <called> a forty-two pounder? <laughs> he caught a forty-two pounder. Let's founder. talk more about and that. And he's had 100 <laughs> fish a hundred fish day on a fluke.
1: So. And sassy shads, we forget, we ain't even talk about sassy shads. <laughs> anyway, I'm giving him a hard
0: time, but it's all right, man. It's good.
1: And what our people, back to tackle, we got to talk about, we didn't ever call them bucktails. They were hairy worms is what we call them. Okay, we'll get back to that, but go ahead about the rest
2: No, of- I think live bait is a question, and I certainly would not allow keeping a fish, what is it, over 27, 8 inches. Absolutely Hopefully not. Hopefully that's being... That
1: changed. is being addressed. That is okay, being so addressed. So we will be Good. protecting those larger females.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. Not this season. Well, for people listening. That is correct. Not for the 2023 season. Right. But hopefully for the 2024 season. Okay. Right. Well, that would
2: just, to me, that makes common sense. If you're missing the big fish, why would you allow someone to keep one? So I think that would help. No use of live bait, I think, would help. Uh, and it, that helps to me more with the discard. So, those fish are caught, mm. and the hook swallowed, and when you take it out, that fish is not going to live, because uh, you've pulled out half of his inners to get the hook
0: out. Sure. And, Soft tissue damage is hard on a fish, for sure. Well, but those are a couple of things that come to my mind. So, we as an agency, one, are addressing the over-27. We're trying to address the over-27. We're also probably, in the not-so-distant future, going to look at, basically, hooking mortality like if it's hooked here and using different types of hooks, that's why I was going to talk about different types of hooks. But we're going to probably put a study together where we try to address hook and mortality and what that actually looks like. Even though some of those studies have been done in the past, we probably need to refresh it. Gear has changed since those studies have happened. Hooks have changed. The hook designs have changed. Fishing
1: styles have changed. Yeah, fishing
0: styles have changed. So we're going to try to address that. That's that's a hard study to do, to be honest with you, because there are so many different styles and stuff, but we're going to try to address that to kind of really get down to, all right, what is the percentage of fish that actually die from hook and mortality? Because it is an important factor. You know, it's something that we really need to know. We kind of have an idea, but we want to kind of solidify that idea of, of what actually is going on with the fish when they, when they get hooked. So that's coming in the future. So in light
1: of... in you both set me up perfect for this, so this was working out great. It's been the whole
0: point of this podcast. is
1: shine a light on you. The light's bouncing off my head right now. <laughs> what we're talking about is fish care, yep, high mortality rates, heavy restrictions. So discard mortality, what we're talking about is coming more and more important factor because with reductions in the river, with reductions in the sound, with reductions. And commercial harvest and rec harvest, like what else can we do? So I wanted to take just a minute to talk about fish care and what's some of the best things we can do. One is, and this is coming too, not necessarily this year, but barbless circle hooks are going to really help the bait fishermen and the natural bait fishermen reduce their imprint. Yep, Single barbless hook has been the rule for all tackle for several years now. Even more so than that, though, is how you handle the fish when it comes in the boat. That's something we can't make rules about. That is a you, your boat, and how you manage what goes on on your boat thing. Have your camera ready. Have your ruler out. Have your scale out. Don't be digging for anything. Take the pic You know, I'm not going to ask you to not take pictures of fish because you know Corey and I, when we fish, we take pictures of stuff.
0: Dang right, because I got to remember it because it's going to be a while before I get back. Right. So have everything
1: ready so that you can get that fish back in the water swimming off as fast as you can. If you have a fish out of the water for more than especially when the water's hot and the air temperature's hot, if you have that fish out of the water for more than two or three minutes, you start to really influence the mortality of that fish. So so fish care, especially in a catch and release fishery, which is what the bulk of the Roanoke is right now. Is a very important.
0: Yep. Yep. I tell people, just think if somebody turned your oxygen off and I, how you would panic. I like my oxygen. I do too. I like to breathe. But, I mean, really, that's what you're doing. If you hold them out for two to three minutes, that's what you're doing is turning their oxygen off. And they can't overcome that after a period of time. Even if they swim off, they won't overcome it. There'll be a delayed mortality somewhere down the river. I tell folks, catch and release is hugely
1: important. Folks. Yeah. Catching harvest is hugely important. Yeah. <laughs> but there's a more and more growing constituency of, of people who fish that really just don't harvest. However, if you think that you're not having an impact, but you're 100% catcher and release angler, that's a little naive. It is. You, know, naive. you are having an impact. It's probably less. Yeah. But you still need to be conscientious, especially on a big fish, that you get that fish swimming off as fast as possible. And that's just. Something we as anglers need to be responsible for if we want to keep things going. So, how's that for a soapbox? That
0: sounds good. All right. Last
1: thing, the hairy worm. Hairy worm. Yeah. You want this one? No, sir. You take it. Okay. I grew up calling them hairy worms, and Bob's nodding, so he's at least acknowledging that I'm not crazy talking. So, that's a bucktail. It is a bucktail. Traditionally, it did not have deer hair. It had a synthetic, synthetic fuzzy, like fake hair. Kind of like what's on this table, but maybe a little bit longer. Gotcha. That's not helping our listeners. No. But envision like polyester, like a Muppet, like
0: what's on the outside of Sesame Street. Did people make them locally or did, or did they buy them?
1: You could buy them and you would normally buy them in large
0: bulk. Oh, yeah, like 25 at a time or something. Right, yeah.
1: yeah. I mean, my dad had, like, he'd buy them a box full. Yeah. And then, because the plastics weren't, like, what they, you know, now you get a boat tail it has got this nice ribbony tail on it, they were literally white U-tail worms, like you would bass fish with, but they were mm. white, and you'd thread them on there, and you would bounce that thing off the bottom, and you would lose one about every third cast, because there's a lot of stuff there's in the river. There's a lot of stuff in that there's river. There's rocks, for sure. there's timber. You would lose so many of them. But if you put it in the right spot, those stripers would, would smash it. So it really is just a bucktail, but mm-hmm. locally known as, as the hairy worm. The hairy worm. I may have one at the house. I'll take a picture. Maybe we can use it as part of this. Oh, we'll, you know, put it up there. Let yeah. so folks know what it looks Sounds like. Good. So, before we get to listener questions, Bob, was there anything else you wanted folks to know? Anything you wanted to get off your chest while you had this moment?
0: No, no. I appreciate the (laughs) opportunity to uh, be here. It's been great. I mean, obviously, I'm not from there, but I can hear in your voice how important it is to you. And I know how important it is to Ben because he says it all the time. I grew up in a very similar type thing. It wasn't that same type of fishery, but the river that I grew up on the noose and the river that I grew up on is very important to me. So I get it 100% that it's kind of just in your blood, in your bones, and you can't really get rid of it. No, it's an amazing place. So
1: as you guys know, we try to do listener questions, and and I just want to thank all of our listeners. You know, huge support. We ran into folks.
0: It's nuts. It's really
1: nuts. Had a fishing show this weekend, and they wanted to take their picture with us. And then he sent me an email thanking me for doing that, which, I mean, it's huge. It's great. I'm yeah. so glad that this has taken all of it the way that yeah. it
0: has. It's been exactly what I dreamed it to be, is people loving the information that we're sharing and hopefully learning from it. I don't know. We'll be out of a job soon, Ben. Well, just keep...
1: Keep sending your questions. Keep sending, because that's where we get our show ideas. That's where we get some of our stories and stuff like that. So just keep it coming.
0: And don't forget to send us your address when you send us questions. We'll send you stuff back that's got our new logo on it. Just do that so that we have that information.
1: And I'm a little behind. So if I used your question and you're like, where's my decal? I'm working on that.
0: It's coming. So been a busy couple weeks. (laughs) It has been a busy few weeks for sure.
1: So our first question is from Josh. Corey can probably answer this one fairly well. Does NC Wildlife have the power to regulate lake levels and does stable water in the spring
0: lead to us having more fish? We do not have the power to regulate lake levels. Usually that is either done by the entity that operates the lake. So whether that's the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers or whether that is a utility company, or a municipality, because a lot of these lakes are municipally owned. Those are the folks that do the water levels. Stable water levels, yes, do help in the springtime when they're spawning. Generally, you don't want that water level to drop out because after they've spawned, because you could dry the bed out, the fish could, you know, not spawn out properly and you lose that. Or even a flood, you know, raising it really fast in the springtime. It's just like what we talked about with striped bass. If you got too much or too little, it can cause problems, particularly at the right time. So, that's my answer to that. I don't know if that's a good one or not. But
1: So, this next one, probably the best comment we've ever gotten. <laughs> I know where this is going. Go ahead. Probably the best comment. And just so you guys know, a little history here, Corey is my supervisor. <laughs> so, just so you kind of know where this is going, and I'm about to tell you all this comment. From uh, one Mr. Jeremy. I'm digging the Ben guy and the guest, but you should lose the Corey dude. He's an <laughs> anchor tied to Ben's leg and he's just <laughs> pulling him down. So there's probably a lot
0: of people that have thought that. And that's not really
1: as much of a question It's just something I wanted to have made known Well,
0: we've realized that this whole podcast Has been shining a light upon you So (laughs) we will continue (laughs) to shine that light upon you As we go through this podcast That's why I figured this was the right time to use this one So It does help (laughs) that I know Jeremy he is
1: a biologist in Kentucky, and so just so you know, he likes to raise us, we like to raise them. That's one of the cool things about fisheries biology is it's a relatively small field, and so we kind of know the other biologists in other states, and we're able to bounce ideas off of them and see what they're doing on their lakes and the rivers compared to what we're doing on our lakes and rivers. So we really appreciate that. But when I read this, I
0: knew this was probably going to make it on the show I appreciate it, and this is the perfect podcast to do it. Like I mentioned, this is uh, this is the Ben Ricks podcast. Today we're going to see
1: about like maybe getting this engraved to hang <laughs> in your office. <laughs> That'd
0: be awesome. So Give me a plaque,
1: right? Yeah, that's, that's right. Good. We're good. So next is a pure fishing question, which I like a lot. Mister Mayo, he messaged me, and he kind of says, "Why are we using leaders?" When we got spinner baits that have wire on it and look like an airplane coming through the water and (laughs) A-rigs that look like chandeliers and don't look like anything natural in the world. But we're worried that a fish is going to see a line. So he asked, like, what's the point of a leader? And I have my opinion, but I wanted to see if either of you guys had any thoughts on that. Well,
0: I can tell you that it, for me, it does make a difference in terms of the number of bites I get particularly in clear water situations or clearer water situations. And I use fluorocarbon leader so that you can't see it. And a lot of the predators that you're trying to catch have really great vision. So I get what he's talking about, that some of those baits don't look natural, but some of those baits are just flashing so that it's just a flash and the fish just responds to that. But if if you're finessing a bait or using something that, is a little slower or something like that i would say that a leader is kind of important at least it, it seems that way to me because whether i've been fishing for smallmouth up north in very clear water or fishing for hybrids on lake norman which is very clear water those fish have big eyes and they can see a lot of things and if it doesn't look natural to them i think a lot of times they're not going to be as apt to bite it
1: yeah so for me yeah clear water Trying to be more stealthy, there's definitely a logic to that. But a lot of the water I fish is not uber clear. Yeah. And you talk about the Roanoke, for example. If it's a high flow, the Roanoke's super clear in the summertime. Yeah, but in the spring, it's not. It, it can get fairly muddy. Do you need a leader then? And for me, the leader, if I'm fishing something like the Roanoke in the spring, my leader's for abrasion. You know, mm-hmm. I don't want to get hung on a rock and get it cut off. So I may beef up my leader a little bit just so it's got a little more abrasion too. resistance. Yeah. So it doesn't necessarily have to do with the fish as much as it has to do with the fishing. The other side of that is like when I throw a topwater bait, I throw a leader and it has absolutely nothing to do with fish seeing it. You could tie yeah. 80 pound braid straight off to yeah. a frog. Most people
0: I know use straight
1: braid. Yep. Yeah. But the reason why I throw a leader, especially when I'm throwing a walk the dog style bait Is because if you hurl that thing and it tumbles and your braid if you're using braid and it gets hung in the leap in your bait, it can get all hung up and then your your treble hooks actually fray up the braid and cause a weak point. also as you're fishing it, I feel like having a little bit of stiffer line in front of a walk the dog style bait helps that bait kind of move side to side a little bit better in the water. So sometimes it has to do with the presentation that you're trying to make and having that bait Work the way you want it to. At the end of the day,
0: it's whatever you want to do. Do what you want to do. I didn't fish leaders till I was probably 30 years old or older. Exactly. My fishing prior to age 30, I don't think I used a leader. And I wasn't very good fisherman either, though, so that might be part of it. If you
1: don't think you need a leader, try not using one. Like, there's no leader police, so try it.
0: If it doesn't impact your fishing, then it's one less thing. And... I will say this, if someone is on your boat and goes, you're not going to catch any fish because you're not fishing the way I fish, don't invite him back on your boat. <laughs> it's your boat, by it's the way. It's your boat, by the way. That's right. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, this is America.
1: We <laughs> can tie leaders or not tie leaders. <laughs> That's right. You know? But I think there's a strategy for it. Leaders are a tool, just like any of the tools in our fishing arsenal. Yep. And you have to just decide when it's appropriate and when it's not. But if you're using one just because somebody told you to, I agree. Evaluate that and see where you're going. Well, we've probably talked too long, haven't we, Corey?
0: It's all right. It's all good. It's been a great podcast. I've really enjoyed listening to the two of y'all because of all the knowledge that y'all have. Bob, thanks so much for being here. We really appreciate you being here today.
1: I appreciate you having me. It's been a lot of fun. Appreciate you coming. Well, we'll see y'all next time. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the North Carolina Wildlife Resources Commission's podcast, Better Fishing with Two Bald Biologists. For more information, please visit ncwildlife.org or email us at twobaldbiologists at ncwildlife.org.